Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Man from Uncle by Michael Avalone. Volume 2, Chapter 4 Shadows over Oberthiesendorf. Le Bourget was a red glare against the inky backdrop of the Paris sky. Blinding, powerful arc lights traversed the airdrome. A long line of fire trucks and police cars filled the perimeter of the terminal. It was quite like the night Lindbergh had landed on his historic one-man solo flight from New York to Paris. Hordes of onlookers thronged the outskirts of the field, their jostling and shouting drowning out all sanity and order. Napoleon Solo dismissed the cab driver and alighted. The front doors of the terminal were yet a good quarter of a mile away, though it was fairly obvious that normal civilian entry was now impossible. Solo walked slowly in that direction. He only paused when he found one of those glass-walled telephone booths. Amid the hubbub and uproar, he was but another meaningless figure added to the bedlam. The night was alive with sound and fury. It was impossible to estimate exactly what had occurred. An explosion, the cab driver had said? Accident or sabotage? Solo dodged a trio of hurrying... Overall, grease-stained men and stepped into the booth. He dropped a coin into the slot and waited. When an operator answered, he asked for a number in the overseas press club. Soon he was connected to a man named Partridge. Partridge here? A British-accented voice said. What is good for hives, Mr. Partridge? Bees. What flies forever and never rests? The wind. When is a door not a door? When it is a jar? Solo breathed more easy. The simple code, though no great shakes, was unfailing. Billy, the bourget is in flames. Partridge's chuckle was grimly unhumorous. Indubitably, old sport, somebody set off a few big ones on the runway at seven this evening. Anything to do with you? It's a possibility. I'm supposed to fly out of here. What's your destination? Hitler's backyard? Any ideas? Time is, as they say, of the essence. He could almost hear Partridge thinking before the answer came. The ex-major Partridge of British Army Intelligence was Uncle's liaison man in Paris, a safety guarantee factor for just such exigencies as this one. Do you have a car? I'm walking so far. I see. And how far into the backyard are you going? The redoubt? I'm picking up Fromes. All right. Listen carefully. Partridge spoke quickly now. There's an airstrip at the northeastern tip of Rouen. Nothing much. But a Frenchman named Landry will rent you a plane for a price. He's a good man. No political convictions save money. Try him. That's great. How do you suggest I get to Rouen, though? Yes. There was another pause. Where are you now? Solo peered through the glass walls of his booth. There was a painted sign and a number staring down at him from the stucco side of a shed of some kind. La Bourgette, Tool Shed, 70339 about 500 yards from the eastern approach to the main terminal. 
Fine. Stay put. A jeep will be there directly. You may leave it to Monsieur Landry. Partridge, I love you. Don't mention it. I am sorry about Fromes. He was a decent chap. Napoleon Solo hung up soberly, staring for a moment at the silent phone box. A decent chap. A glorious testimonial to a man who had given his life for his country. Fromes would understand, though. There were no medals, no financial bonuses, no awards to win with Uncle. Only the memory of men like Partridge. Outside the booth, the thick aroma of smoke mixed with gasoline and oil assaulted his nostrils. He winced and turned up his collar. The night air was biting despite the proximity of the smoldering blaze igniting the area as far as the eye could see. Sighing philosophically, he fished out a pack of French cigarettes and lit one from his jet-flame lighter. He reversed his tourister on the shorter end and sat down to wait. All about him, La Bourgette was a madhouse. To American G.I.s of World War II, Rouen had been easily, almost charitably dubbed, the road to ruin, for it was here that the long march into Germany to end the combat in the European theater of operations usually began. Once troop ships landed at devastated Le Havre, Rouen was the first step on the leg of the journey for all ETO task forces. Solo had served in Korea, being but a stripling in the days of Pearl Harbor, but many a retread on Heartbreak Ridge had regaled him with yarns about Rouen. Armored division men had long memories, and their G.I. French was interwoven with the history of the little border city just outside the harbor. Patton had filled his gas tanks there. Every army of the U.S. that swept through Fortress Europe had known Rouen for at least a day. Now as he wheeled the jeep swiftly over the unpaved roads with forests of trees engulfing him on either side, Solo thought about Waverly's cryptic note. Memories of Rouen had recalled William de Prado, the combat MP to whom Waverly had referred at his cable. De Prado had been in Rouen. His outfit had landed there after a stint in North Africa, it was here that his poignant warning had been given birth. The squad of his men had entered a bistro on a mop-up campaign following the German evacuation of the town. When one unwary MP had picked up a bottle of pomard wine and foolishly tugged up the cork, there had been little left of the soldiers save a bloody mass of flesh. Booby traps for booby troops, Corporal Depato had cursed bitterly. The remark had become legendary, filtering down through the ranks, the divisions, the platoons, and squads, until one night it had reached the ears of First Lieutenant Napoleon Solo for his cavalry regiment. He had burned the remark into his consciousness of war. When the time came for his fitness report as a member of UNCLE, it had been included as code information in his file. Hence the simple use of the name William de Prado meant a volume of words a code no enemy could ever break because it only meant something to Napoleon Solo. But what did its usage mean in the assignment of recovering Stuart Frome's corpse? Did Waverley actually mean to suggest that he thought Frome's body was mined in some way? It was ridiculous. Or was it? Still, it was something to think about, wasn't it? 
Solo thought a great deal about it as he spurred the jeep along, the needle far beyond the 60-mile-an-hour mark. The mechanized bug shot over the road, whipping like the mechanical rabbit at a quinea. The slipstream flung Solo's tie like a pennant in the breeze. The stars had vanished behind a sudden, all-enveloping darkness. It was hazardous going. Solo peered carefully through the windshield, eyes alert to abrupt dips and bends in the roadway. Partridge's jeep had been delivered by a silent U.S. Army sergeant who had done little more than turn the ignition keys over and make an idle comment about the Le Bourget fire. Partridge had his own methods, obviously. Solo had quit the vicinity of the airfield as soon as possible. He hadn't quite forgotten the nasty set to and Denise Fraumont's company. Something was up all right, and it all seemed to point to Stuart Fromes and or Thrush. Bright lights winked up ahead. That was Rouen. Solo slowed for a high grade and put the jeep in low gear and rose sharply. The lights were to his left. He consulted his watch. Close to 10.30. He found a map in the glove compartment of the jeep and scanned it thoroughly. The compass needle set artfully and the watch face indicated northeast. Grimly, he swung the jeep where the road suddenly forked to the right. Landry's airstrip shouldn't be too far away by his reckoning. And it wasn't. Past a cluster of house lights and streets of poor illumination, he spotted a dirt road leading to the northeastern end of Rouen, and then a bevy of scattered farms. A cow mooed in the night. Solo concentrated. It would be easy to lose sight of his destination in the deepening gloom. And then he saw what he was looking for. Ten kerosene markers glowing in the night. There was a wide expanse of earth, lighter colored than the rest of the brown French ground, and a long, low hangar of sorts. Dimly against the horizon, he spotted the trim outlines of the airplane. Landry was waiting for him. You fly, my friend? Yeah, and I'll pay you well. Good on both counts. I'm sure you will like this plane we have for you. The man was a parody of France. Fat, brayed, pot-bellied, and dirty as a swine. A burned-down cigarette barely peaked from beneath a clump of walrus mustache. Solo's nostrils curled. The man wasn't worth trusting. Yet Partridge had vouched for him. I'd like to leave immediately. As you will, my friend. The plane is already being warmed up. Solo reached into his pocket for his billfold. His eyes searched Laundry's unkept face. Laundry shrugged his mountainous shoulders. I prefer American money if you have it. One thousand dollars will do nicely. It was Solo's turn to shrug. Will ten travelers' checks at one hundred each do? Ah, uh, yes, quite nicely. From outside came the muted roar of aircraft. Swiftly, Napoleon signed ten checks and tore them neatly from the blue folder and handed them to Landry. The Frenchman grunted and tucked them into the waistband of his dirty trousers. Ludicrously, he wore a fashionable cummerbund around his expansive middle. How long will this flight take? Time was the main concern now. Where do you journey to? Obertiesendorf, or any place near enough to make it worthwhile. Landry considered that. 
Three, maybe four hours? As I say, the plan is a good one. I'm sure of it. Au revoir, my friend. To Solo's great surprise, he found the plane to be a modern, streamlined beechcraft debonair. A real custom-built American job. The plaything of millionaires and Riviera scions. His respect for laundry mounted. He waved back a farewell to the shed where laundry stood at the window. Sulla reached the ship, a fine swath of propellers shining like a million stars in the gloom. He spotted a figure, helmeted and goggled, sitting in the cabin. Sulla pulled the air door back and placed his tourister in the roomy space beyond the two front seats of the cabin job. As he squeezed in, the helmeted figure slid over to the far seat. Solo frowned. Before he could mutter a surprise of protest, the short, snout-nosed barrel of an automatic pistol jammed against its midsection. Climb in and close the door and don't make any other moves, a bright voice snapped. Solo's eyes went cold, but he did as he was told. The closeness of the cabin made the gun held against his ribcage seem like the bore of a cannon. Is this part of Monsieur Landry's plane service? he asked dryly. It was my idea, the voice answered. In the gloom of the cabin, he could not make out the face of his captor. Now prove to me that you're Napoleon Solo. You look like him, and you talk like him, but that's not enough. Can you show me some proof? Solo sighed and stared straight ahead, eyes probing the night. Can I reach for my identity card? Go ahead, but no tricks. Very carefully, he took from his inner pocket a small stack of business cards and plastic-coated licenses and handed them over. There you go. Leaf through those. Find the one you want. Maybe you'll win a large, shiny new automobile. You fool. But his captor said nothing else and took the cards. Solo folded his arms, listening to the smooth tune-up of the debonair's engine. For a brief second, he watched as the helmeted figure took his uncle identity card and applied a small applicator of some kind to its surface. A drop of some form of liquid washed over the face of the card. Nothing happened. There was a satisfied grunt from the occupant of the other seat. Very good, on all counts. You may take us up now, Mr. Solo. It's time we got out of here. Solo shrugged and busied himself with the controls. He, too, wanted to get into the air. He swung the debonair around, pointing its nose to the east, and began to taxi along the hard, lumpy earth. He checked his instrument panel and hummed to himself. The slender figure at his side had pocketed the snout-nosed automatic quite suddenly. He drew back gently on the stick, mind occupied with takeoff. The nose of the plane knifed forward, seeming to head straight, for the high wall of trees before them. Gradually, almost unnoticeably, the wheels left the ground, and the debonair lifted like a graceful bird. The propeller clawed at the air. The instrument gauges danced, the multiple needles busy with recording the flight into darkness. The dark earth fell away, the trees vanished. Monsieur Landry's fortuitous landing strip faded back into the past. Solo rubbed at his right eye, yawning, feeling the strain of the night's events. He looked idly at the figure who was now sitting quietly at his side. 
Well, unknown friend and fellow traveler, are you going to tell me what this is all about, or do we ride in perfect silence the rest of the way? His companion's nose and profile was as straight as a ruler, the mouth almost lush. A confirming bell went off in Solo's head. He laughed lightly, waiting for the answer to his question. You're not a guy, I take it. And neither are you as somebody who's crazy about airplanes and would do just about anything for a joyride. The snapping voice laughed back. You win, hero. I came here specifically to go with you on your trip. My destination is your destination. Uh-huh. Will you unmask now, or are you going to hide behind the helmet and goggles forever? The girl laughed a warm, vitamin-packed laugh which had all the vigor and go-to-hellishness of a marine drill sergeant. He looked on admiringly as the helmet and goggles were swept to one side by a long, tapering, slim hand. Coppery, shoulder-length hair spilled in a golden cascade. A bright, brown-eyed face smiled at him through a chocolate film of grease over the lower half, framing white, impeccable teeth. Allow me to introduce myself. I'm your co-pilot, Geraldine Terry, on this uncharted flight to Obertiesendorf, Germany. I tested your ID with a special acid, and since it didn't corrode, it's the real thing. I didn't kill the man who was supposed to warm up your plane, just cooled him with a little judo and helped myself to his clothes so that I could get onto the field. Any more questions to relieve your mind? He stared at her was inconceivable, but there she was, bright and sunny, a real American beauty, yet she had maneuvered as sweet a swish as he had ever encountered. Geraldine Terry, girl spy, he mused. Government girl, if you please, she snapped back, eyes on the air lanes ahead as if she still didn't trust him. You can call me Jerry Terry. The debonair plunged on smoothly through the night skies. Chapter 5. Napoleon. No longer solo. More rapid than eagles his courses they came, Solo said quietly. He was smiling slightly, but still on guard. This could easily be more like Denise Vermont's hanky-panky and he hadn't quite reconciled himself to that one yet. I beg your pardon, Mr. Solo, Jerry Terry asked sweetly. I was just thinking about the night before Christmas when all sorts of surprises fill my stocking. May I ask why you're so determined to join me on this trip? Jerry Terry's smile vanished. It made a startling transformation in her face. The fresh beauty seemed to give way to a Joan of Arc severity. That makes sense, Mr. Solo. I'm willing to talk. We have a similar interest in this enterprise. Go on, I'm listening, Miss Terry. Can I have a cigarette? He placed a cigarette between her lips and held his lighter for her, admiring her features as he did so. He decided that the assignment was becoming more interesting all the time. Okay. You have your cigarette now, and we've been formally introduced. And you know where I'm going. The question is, who are you, and why are you going with me? Solo, she said softly, I'm not always funny and bright. 
I'm as responsible as I can be. Stuart Fromes means as much to my organization as it does to yours. Fortunately, both of us are playing for the same side. And what is my organization? Well, you're the man from UNCLE. Okay, what is your organization? I'm the girl from U.S. Army Intelligence. Solo frowned. You'll forgive me, I'm sure, if I find that hard to believe. I've never heard of lady intelligence officers. Well, they made an exception in my case. Why? Are you the G2's daughter? She laughed. No, but I am young, I'm attractive, and I possess the one thing that makes me unique for my job. Go ahead. Hit me. This must be something. I have an eidetic memory, what some people call a photographic memory, and it's a foolproof one, I might add. It's been tested and not been found wanting. Solo pondered. Yeah, that would make her a vital asset to any organization. If she could once look at something, even a maze of blueprint and detail, and record it in her mind as though it were an actual photograph. Yeah, an agent like that would be worth her weight in Fort Knox gold. All right, Cherry Terry, I'll buy your fish story for now. At least until we land. But please, tell me where this concerns you directly. She sighed. Good, play it cautious. I respect you more for it. Fine. We're 3,000 feet above the ground, and this place is not bugged or wired for sound. I checked it out while I sat and waited for you. We know about Fromes. We knew he was an Obertiesendorf as a field chemist for Uncle. Your people had to let us know about it at the command decision level. It's that big. We got the report about Fromes' sudden death almost as soon as it happened. The news went through the American Council to our private line as it did yours. Army Intelligence sent me out right away. There may be something vital to memorize in Frome's laboratory if they haven't cleaned it up yet. Solo nodded. And who do your people think they are? Jerry Terry clamped her teeth. The communists, of course. Who else is so interested in world conquest? Solo immediately decided to change the subject. What was Frome's working on? She shivered. I don't really know, but God, it must be big to send all the troops in like that. Don't you think? Solo turned a rueful smile on his newfound ally. I work for a man who sends me on errands and then explains to me exactly what I went for after I get back. But I have some ideas. Fromes was a friend of mine, and I know what interested him more than anything else on Earth. Chemical warfare. She shuddered again. He idly wondered what kind of figure the leather jacket and whipcord breeches concealed. It was hard to tell with all the gloom in the cabin. Now for the $64,000 question, he prodded. All right. You pinpointed me exactly to the dot and stroke of the clock. How did you know I was coming to Rouen to rent this plane? She showed him the white teeth again. We have our own methods, Watson. You'll have to do better than quoting Sherlock Holmes, Miss Terry. I need some proof that you are who you say you are, besides your dazzling smile. Come on, give. What will you do if I don't? She challenged. 
I can kill you without leaving a trace. Her eyes met his, and something stirred on the female side in their dark brown depths. I'll bet you could at that. Fair enough. We knew you were at the Internationale. You were followed to Les Bourgettes when you left, and a certain Mr. X is a fairly close friend of your overseas club contact. Get the picture? One top echelon man tells another top echelon man, and the agents fend for themselves. He nodded. I'm convinced. Thank you. What are your plans for Obertiesendorf? I don't intend to saw Stuart Frome's body in half just to make friends with army intelligence. It was a grim joke to get a laugh out of her, and he respected her for not even smiling. No, I simply wish to be with you when you claim the body, and look around. Then we can part company. We want Uncle to have the body. Well, that's awfully white of you. She sensed the bitterness in his voice. Was he a very good friend of yours? The best kind. Never changed colors or patterns on you. I'm very sorry, then. Don't be. He was abrupt and curt. He saw the sudden flush in her cheeks and immediately felt sorry. He changed the subject again as a sudden thought came to him. Can we land anywhere near Obertiesendorf? She nodded. We checked out the terrain. There's a 500-acre meadow to the south side of the town. One problem, though. How do you intend to get Frome's body out of there? He frowned slightly. That's what bothers me the most. I guess the train is my only bet unless I can find a plane. My plans haven't covered that yet. I expect to get some instructions tomorrow. The debonair droned on, a tiny dot in the dark seas of the French sky. Well, Kiriakin, Waverly stared glumly at Ilya Nikovich Kiriakin, marveling for the nth time at what fortune had guided Uncle to draw this man from behind the Iron Curtain. It was necessary at times to operate in that part of the world, and Kiriakin had proven his merits more than once. For all of his Russian origin, the man was an excellent uncle agent. Clever, resourceful, physically adept, and an excellent man in the laboratories, too. Even now he was justifying Waverly's firm belief in his ability. Ilya Nikovich Kuryakin, his thatch of straw-colored hair awry, held up the test tube which had prompted Waverly's attention. Yes, Mr. Waverly. A positive, I'm afraid. Well, Waverly turned to hide his chagrin, fumbling one of his pipes. No mistake, then. None. The sample matches the one we examined. Therefore, both corpses were suffering from the same disease. Well, that's a nice kettle of fish, I must say. He flung a reproachful glance at Kiriakin, as if he were evidencing his usual disapproval of the Russian's rumpled suit and sloppy tie. Kiriakin shrugged. When Solo returns with his body, we can run another test. If it turns out the same way, there can be no mistake. Yes, yes, that's true. Waverly worried his corncob pipe. It was a damnable business all around. If Thrush had succeeded with the nasty business as well as he suspected, there would indeed be hell to pay. But he had to respect Kiriakin's results. 
If the blood specimens of the corpses from Utangoville, Africa, and Sparewood, Scotland, showed the same X-factor, why then the proof was there. Of what he did not know, save that his research laboratory experts had found one exact unknown similarity between both blood specimens, something they vouched could not happen in a hundred million attempts. Have you heard from Solo yet, Mr. Waverley? No, but I intend to phone him transatlantic, twelve o'clock Germany time, tomorrow. He should be where he's supposed to be by then. If anyone can make an appointment at the right time, he can. Yes, indeed. Well, Kiriakin, we'll discuss this at another time. Yes, sir. Back at his quiet desk, with the row of enamel buttons, the head of Section 1, Uncle, found a neatly stacked mass of reports awaiting him. The teletype and recorder machines had issued forth a harvest of data. It was Waverly's daily duty to keep abreast of all that happened in the world as it affected the organization. Waverly put away his corn cob and attacked the pile. Yet even as his mind flew over the data, absorbing the material therein, he could not shake a gloomy feeling of impending doom in the pit of his ancient stomach. The reports on the La Bourgette fire and the hullabaloo at the Hotel International had had a demoralizing effect on him. He seemed to have sent Napoleon Solo on an assignment which did nothing but raise a swarm of hornets. Damnation, he thought. It only went to prove that Stuart Frome's corpse was of the utmost importance to somebody. Yet why consent to turn a man's body over to his friends if he meant to do nothing but keep those friends from retaining that body? It was a puzzler indeed. And for a man whose lifelong passion was a good game of chess, it was a dazzling problem. Waverly's eyes suddenly glowed, and the reports fell away from beneath him. His dour face almost broke into a full smile. Of course, the very thing. The only reason, the single possible motive for such a play. Why hadn't he thought of it sooner? Swiftly, his thumb reached for the row of buttons. He poked the yellow buzzer this time. The metallic voice clicked on. Yes, Mr. Waverly. Get me the war room in the Pentagon. The Joint Chiefs of Staff. I wish to talk to the head of the Army Air Force. Hold on, sir. Waverly hid his eagerness to explore his newfound theory and impatient to put his plan into operation, explored the center drawer of his desk until he produced a regulation briar pipe. He sucked on it briefly, tapped the bowl with a stiff finger, and waited. His eyes still held the look of a man who had stumbled onto a great truth. When the call went through and the head of the Army Air Force came over the wire, Waverly plunged into his request. Uncle, it seemed, had immediate top priority use for a jet bomber flight to Paris, without payload, to connect Waverly with an air-sea rescue helicopter for pickup in Obertiesendorf, Germany. Meanwhile, over 4,000 miles away, Napoleon Solo's Beechcraft Nevenir was setting down in the very early morning darkness that closed like a shroud over the sleeping town of Obertiesendorf, Germany. Chapter 6. A Coffin for Uncle 
The funeral parlor which contained Stuart Frome's body was a living mockery. It was hard to believe that Oberthiesendorf was even a town of any size. In the darkness of landing at night, which Solo had done expertly, and with fine command of the patch of ground left for the job, the town had seemed little more than several rows of houses, divided by a running stream of water which flowed steadily under a joke of a bridge. Once they had quit the vicinity of the plain, Napoleon Solo had known where to go. Every German town or village has a burgermeister or mayor. They found Herr Burgermeister's dwelling on the main street of the town with a hanging oaken sign suspended from cast-iron moorings which proclaimed the information, Burgermeister. Napoleon Solo had roused that irate individual from a sound sleep, banging loudly on the front door. A frightened housefrau had peeked down owlishly from a shuttered window and then hurried to fetch her husband. While they waited on the rutted road below, Solo had taken stock of a few things. He was worn to the bone and starved, and Geraldine Terry had a splendid figure. She was nearly as tall as he was, but her chest measurements were far more satisfactory and in shapelier evidence. The leather flying jacket could not now conceal the surge of a ripe womanly body. The Burgermeister thin, scrawny, and old, gawked in relief when Solo flashed his impressive uncle credentials, which to the world at large was some kind of charitable organization for the needy and underprivileged. It was so easy for the casual observer to assume from Solo's outer appearance that he was some wealthy young man who had decided to be a philanthropist as his life's work. Herr Mueller was impressed, too. Yeah. I'm glad you have come. It is about time you take your friend. I've made good time, all things considered. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But one day too long, and we have to bury your friend. I... I don't understand. Do not misunderstand. He was a fine man. But law here. Body must be claimed by two days, or we must bury body. You understand? He rot and smell if we don't. No, we do not have... How do you call it? Facilities for refrigeration. Please take us to him now, Herr Mueller. The undertaker's parlor was no more than a squat, ugly brown building of stone and wood. Inside, a dim ball burned feebly. Solo reflected bitterly that the undertaker's calling was the same the world over. Keep a light burning in the window all day long to remind the living that someday they would die. And now was the time to make plans. Stuart Frome's corpse lay on a flat wooden table, a long sheet of grey muslin draped over his entire length. There was a faint yet already palpable odour of decay in the room. Solo frowned, motioning Jerry Terry to stay back as he came forward. He moved toward the sheet. Upstairs he could hear the mortician, who had remained out of sight, exchanging guttural German insults with the burgermeister. Solo, face expressionless, removed the sheet from Stuart Frome's body. It was not easy to look at. Stuart Frome's corpse was a scene from hell. His exposed face had already begun to rot, the first signs of visible decay, burying the cartilage of his nose and laying back the gums of his mouth. Flesh lay thin and decomposing on the lean face that Solo had known so well. 
Solo's insides revolted. His logic reeled. Stuart Fromes looked like he had been dead for a month. There was no denying the utter gauntness and yellowing, the rotting dead tissues of his face. The features had all withdrawn to resemble the wrinkled, leathery, dry rot of decay. Yet, with all the horror of the situation and the revelation, there was one more staggering blow to sanity. Stuart Frum's clothes were all reversed. It was unmistakable as the condition of the dead man's face. His jacket was on backwards, straight-jacket style. His shirt was the same peculiar way, showing the rear of the collar as if he were a minister. And there was no tie, naturally. Solo, still revolted, bent to examine the corpse. Stuart Frome's trousers were on backwards, too. The only place where the motif had been ignored was the feet. Stuart Frome's ten stiff, naked toes wore no shoes. Napoleon Solo stepped back, completely baffled. This was like some double blasphemy of the dead, like some filthy joke that had no point other than shame and unholy mortification. He felt anger begin to cloud his reason. He shook it off. There was overtly something devilishly remarkable about the whole thing. Stuart Fromes looked as though there would be not a single mark on his body to indicate what had killed him, yet his body was rotting away before Solo's very eyes, and all of his apparel had been reversed. Why, in God's name? Napoleon! Jerry Terry shuddered. What does this mean? I don't know. Let's wait until our German friends are done with their bickering. I've never run up against anything like this before. Herr Burgermeister bobbed into view, his scrawny figure agitated. Not fool Klingenheim. He lost a little sleep. I don't understand why he... He paused, bewildered. He had seen the look in Napoleon Solo's eyes. Bitte. Is something wrong? Yes, Herr Mueller. I find my friend's body badly taken care of and his clothes most unusually arranged. P please, the Burgermeister begged. We have no facilities. I'm sorry, you must know that. As for his clothes, we found him like this, in the kitchen of his house. I swear, we touched nothing. You're sure? Yeah, yeah, I swear. Where is his laboratory, please? Two squares over. Come. Are you done here? No. I will come back to guard the body, and I'll need ice. Lots of ice, you understand? The body has to be kept from decomposing further before I can return it to America. Tell Mr. Klingenheim I want a coffin. I'll pay him well. Can you do these things for me? Yes. Good. I want nothing touched. I will crate the body myself. Is that understood now, Herr Mueller? The commands were so evenly stated, so unequivocally pronounced, that even if Herr Mueller knew nothing of Napoleon Solo, he knew him well enough now to be afraid. You take me for a dumb cough, Herr Solo? I do this, I do this. Fine, now show me where my friend stayed here in Overtiesendorf. The Burgermeister led the way, clucking fearfully, guiding them through a swinging hurricane lamp which splattered yellowish rays over the sickly landscape. Jerry Terry clung to Solo's right arm and huddled close, 
as they walked. It was a smallish cottage-like place set further back than the homes flanking its low sides. The paint was peeling and ugly black patches shone through the cornices of the structure. Herr Mueller ushered them to the front door and shrugged his shoulders in resignation before he turned away to do Solo's bidding in the matter of the corpse. Oh, Herr Mueller, Solo called before he had darted from view. Bitte? Where is Frau Morgenstern, the lady who was his housekeeper? Gone, run away. We have not seen her since the terrible thing that happened. No one has seen her. And with that, he was gone. Jerry Terry shivered. This is an ugly little town. I feel it in my bones. I agree wholeheartedly with your bones. Come on in and watch out for low-flying bats. There was a light switch close to the front door. Obertiesendorf had electricity. At least it wasn't as backwards as not having that. Perhaps it might even seem livably decent in the daylight. Stuart Frome's home away from home was a modest two-room affair with a loft above. This he had converted into his laboratory. Solo lit a cigarette and loosened his tie. The plain, simple furniture mocked him. Okay, memory girl, let's go over the complete setup, top to bottom. If there's anything at all here we should know about, let's find it. Stuart Fromes is not going to go to waste. Not if I can help it, right? Right. Side by side, they worked through the two rooms, emptying everything, overturning all inside. Solo even drained a sugar bowl and a coffee pot, sifting the dead grounds for clues. There was nothing. The place was as devoid of personal belongings as a hotel room can be. See anything, Jerry? Nothing. Shall we try the loft? Yeah, that was his real home. He would have left his imprint there more than anywhere else. Yet twenty minutes later, Napoleon Solo admitted defeat. He felt completely stymied. Beyond finding the same old Bunsen burners, slides, and scientific apparatus that a research chemist might need, he was absolutely in the dark. Worse, they had not even stumbled upon a book of notes or records or some such daily log in which to record data. Blind Alley, Solo? Maybe, Terry. I don't think so. He had notes all right, lots of them, in his head and on paper. The trouble is, whoever killed him forgot nothing. I got his notes, too. That would make sense if he found something. He must have, or he wouldn't have been killed. She sighed. We don't know for a fact that he was killed. He stared at her. The high altitude must have scrambled your brains, Miss Terry. Agents like Stuart Fromes don't just keel over in midday because they have high blood pressure. Probably not, but I wish we knew for sure. Solo cast a long, mournful look around the house. He shook his head, fatigue making his voice as raspy as a file. He found out something, all right, right here and right in this room. And they found out about him. So they killed him, in a way that's caused his body to start decomposing immediately. Solo paused, frowning. 
I wish I knew what we were looking for so we'd know what it was when we found it. She smiled wanly. I bet you can't say that all over again, Mr. Solo, and get it perfectly straight. I'll tell you something. I'm not even going to try. He took her arm. Come on, lady. Tough work ahead. You have to help me pack a coffin. He felt her body stiffen beside him. Their eyes locked. Do I have to, Napoleon? No, of course not. But it'll be easier if you help. Then I'll help, she responded. He kissed her quickly, full on the mouth, and drew back before she could either slap him or respond. Her eyes widened in surprise. He laughed. You thought I was going to make love to you right there and then, huh? Something like that, she confessed. Something like that. Something like that'll come later, I promise you, he smiled. They marched hand in hand back to the mortician's parlor, with sleeping Obertiesendorf closing them in on all sides and the dark sky above. Jerry Terry yawned sleepily. Napoleon Solo fought to keep his eyes open. It had been a very long night, and it wasn't over yet by half. At the far end of the village, just where the last house disappeared under a shelving of trees, Herr Mueller rapped at a wooden door. He was admitted quickly by a tall, lanky man nearly a head higher. The Burgermeister held his hat fearfully between his thin fingers, alternately crumbling and pulling it apart. It was a small bare room. Only an upended barrel with a single wax candle set on it provided illumination. The tall man stood behind the light, face in the shadows, his figure looming large on the ceiling. His body was encased in something that was more than a cape and less than a cloak. Report, the tall man said in a low voice. It was hollow and somehow unreal, like something heard in a vault. A man has come for the body. What man? Uh, he says his name is Solo, uh, Mr. Solo. I have real hair. Alone? No, there was a woman with him, a lovely matron. The tall man heaved a curse across the room. A candle flickered as if it might expire. Then Herr Mueller nearly jumped in his fright. What does Herr Solo demand of you? Coffin? Ice? Much ice. He wants to prevent the body from more decomposing. So, the tall man laughed briefly and chillingly. Anything else? Mine, Peter, that was all he asked for. The tall man laughed. Good. Give him his coffin. Give him his ice. Obey all he tells you. Peter. Go, now. Make sure it is all done. That will be all. Herr Mueller nodded, his throat working nervously. Turning, he fairly crawled out of sight. The door closed softly behind him. The tall man moved to the candle and bent over it to extinguish the flame. Briefly, the light illuminated a face from hell. Then the flame puffed out, and the room was once more in darkness. <laughs>